Mark 6. Familiar story, very familiar story to many of you, I'm sure. Beginning in verse 30. Then the apostles, they gathered to Jesus and told him all the things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And Jesus said to them, come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest for a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. But the multitude saw them departing, and many knew Jesus and ran there on foot from all the cities. They arrived before them and came together to Jesus. And Jesus, when he came out, the idea is when he came out of the boat, the crowd already being on the beach to greet him, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them. You know, the emotion, the attribute most attributed to Jesus in all of the New Testament was this word, compassion. That this is who he was, that this is what stood out in the the mind of the guys who were present with him more often than any other emotion ever ascribed to him. It was compassion again and again that they would use. They saw that he was moved with compassion for the crowd because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. When the day was now far spent, his disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and already the hour is late. Send them away, that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. But he answered and said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said to Jesus, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? But he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then Jesus commanded them to make them all, the whole multitude, sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in ranks in hundreds and in fifties. And when he had taken the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven, blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And the disciple, or and, and the two fish he divided among them, amongst them all. So they all ate and were filled, and they took up twelve baskets full of fragments and of the fish. Now those who had eaten the loaves were about five thousand men. You know, in the nineteenth century, there was a movement that developed, kind of a school of theology and thought referred to as the Religious Historical Society. And their influence revisits about 100 years later through something known as the Jesus Seminar. These movements were rooted in an anti-supernatural line of thinking. And this still exists in the church today, or in what would be called maybe the church in a broad sense of the term. But an anti-spiritual, or anti-supernatural, I should say, an anti-miraculous line of thinking that would look to explain away any phenomenon that you find in the pages of Scripture. And this is not an exception to it. If you look at what they write regarding... Regarding this story where Jesus will feed 5,000 with just five loaves and two fish, they'll, they'll suggest one of two things has happened here. Either that Jesus set this whole thing up and that he and the guys had previously gone to this one region and had filled a cave with a bunch of bread and a stockpile of dried smoked fish. And when the moment came, Jesus in a large flowy robe 
stood there before him, and the guys started a bucket line, bringing the fish and the loaves, reaching under his coat, and then dropping bread down his sleeve. Like a magician, he's throwing bread from each hand as they continue the supply chain to fill the line before him, or, or behind him, I should say, uh, fooling everyone before him. That's one option. The other option, they would say, is that really the, the miracle was misunderstood because the miracle was that Jesus instilled in the hearts of the people something very unique, and that was human generosity. And it wasn't just that there was the one boy with five loaves and two fish, but when Jesus brought that before the people, it inspired in them the miracle of generosity. And everyone then exposed the fact that they too had brought a lunch and began to share all those things in common. And that is the way that, that this story actually plays out because we can't believe that the supernatural could actually happen because this is unbelievable to think that these things actually took place but but I approach the Bible very differently I approach it believing what it says and in this story I believe it's a real story that records a very real miracle in fact this story is recorded in all four Gospels the only one of Jesus miracles that's recorded in all four Gospels and in our all four Gospels it comes at the very point or very same point uh, chronologically in the story right on the heels of the things we've just studied with, with the, the 12 disciples the apostles returning and with the news of John the Baptist's death arriving that then this story takes place and you should know that this isn't just a story that the gospel told us about, but really this is a story that the Old Testament foreshadowed. I think that it was looking forward to this moment. You, you think about it, this story really parallels what happens in a very similar setting in the book of Exodus when uh, the children of Israel leave Egypt. And when they do, they find themselves in the wilderness wandering and God supernaturally provides bread for them. Remember from heaven, heaven's provision for them was bread. They called it manna. It just means what is it? They didn't have a, a, a real understanding even of what it was or, or a category to place it in. They just said, well, what is it? And every day bread from heaven came. You remember, though, they were strictly uh, warned, not just instructed, but warned, don't take more than you need each day because every day you shall, go, you shall go and collect it because if you take more than you need, it'll get moldy overnight. Except for on the night leading into the Sabbath, take a double portion for you and your God will rest. Think of this. There's a day of rest. And on that day, it was preserved and didn't mold. You remember, even in the wilderness, it wasn't just that they received bread, but then they received meat because God sent a quail to go into their encampment. And it says that they're just knocking them out of the air so that they had the bread and the meat as much as they wanted to eat that God provided miraculously in the middle of the wilderness. In fact, Psalm 78, if you've ever read it, Psalm 78 is remembering that amazing provision. It starts with the psalmist. He starts to write about God's promise to Jacob that he would provide for his descendants, that he would multiply them and through them bless the whole world. And then he talks about, he reflects on the deliverance that God brought them through Egypt to take them out of Egypt and provide for them inside the wilderness. And the psalmist makes this comment in verse 19 of Psalm 78. He says, yes, they spoke against God. They complained against him. They said, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? They asked the question, another translation, they, they said this, God can't give us food in the middle of the wilderness. And yet God did just that. Really, that's the point that he's making is that God alone could provide a meal in the middle of the wilderness. He could provide a meal where there was no way to make one. 
which is exactly what you see Jesus doing, even you'd find in all four of the Gospels, they all notate the same thing, that they were in the wilderness or in a deserted place. They're intentionally drawing your mind back to Egypt to show you that Jesus is doing that same thing. There's another Old Testament, though, uh, I think, story and miracle that foreshadows this moment, and it takes place in 2 Kings 4, where there's this guy, Elisha, who during the time when Israel's feeling very forsaken, that the nation of God is questioning, God, where are you? God reminds them that he mattered, or that they matter to him, when Elisha will feed a hundred people with just 20 barley loaves. Which may explain, think about it, why even in this story, it's notated that Jesus will have them be separated even into groups of fifties and hundreds. And there's another note here that echoes of this story in verse 43, where it says that they even took up baskets of leftover. In verse 43, they say that. And it's in 2 Kings, excuse me, chapter 4, verse 43, it makes the comment that after they all ate, they even took up baskets of leftovers, the same thing that's happening here in this story. So what the story teaches us, if you just know the Old Testament, very clearly and very simply, is that Jesus is greater than the law, we think of Moses, because Jesus provides everything that we need and leaves people satisfied rather than disgruntled. He leaves them with leftovers rather than moldy bread, And that Jesus, in fact, is also greater than the prophets of old, surpassing even what Elisha did by feeding these these men, that group of men, with a certain amount of barley loaves. He will feed even more. And so what it's telling you, just very clearly, by lifting uh, the veil on those Old Testament miracles and showing that they foreshadowed an amazing moment here, is it's just showing you, reminding you, Jesus' power, the fact that he had authority, the fact that he is God. It's very simple. It's setting before you the fact that Jesus is unlike any other because he's categorically different from every other. We call that holy, that that's what he is. He is God in the flesh. But if that's what the story looks like from 30,000 feet, what did it look like to be on the street level as one of the disciples? I mean, think about for these 12 guys who just come back from their time away where Jesus commissions them with authority. And when they return, this amazing moment takes place. What was this moment teaching them who are present to experience it? And there's, there's three things I want you to kind of chew on as we look at the meal that Jesus provides. And the, the first thing is that I think the story taught them what the real obstacle to rest was. And think about this. The story teaches us, I think, what the real obstacle to rest is. Remember where we find this story, that the disciples are sent out as the apostles, commissioned with the message and reality of Jesus to carry it with them every place that they went. And it tells you that they were so effective in what they did that word reaches all the way to Herod's palace, where Herod is deeply troubled. He's rattled by what he hears. But according to Luke's gospel, he's intrigued so much that he's longing to meet Jesus personally to have an audience with him. Matthew tells you that while all of that is taking place, the, the, the disciples of John take uh, John's body down and, and, and from Herod's palace after he's, he's murdered and mutilated, and, and they take his body and they bury it, and then they bring news to Jesus specifically. Matthew tells you that when this tragic news of the murder and mutilation of Jesus' own cousin, John, reaches him, that Jesus is clearly deeply impacted by the news because it says that he withdraws to be alone. 
And then Mark tells us that the 12 apostles, they returned to Jesus from their venture in faith with reports of all that they had accomplished, all that God had done. And then in verse 31, Jesus looks at them and says, come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. What he observed about them was that it was time for a break. That there's a rhythm of work and of rest, and that rhythm was now to step back and rest. This is actually a part of the story that I did not really noticed, and I've read this story many times over the years. Not really noticed until this week. For me this week, early in the week, I started reading and studying and thinking, and one of the ways I process things is I'll go for a run. And so while I was running one day this week, it dawned on me that really the context of the story, where we find it, is Jesus telling them, we're going to rest. You need rest. And then he withdraws, and what they find instead of rest is another multitude, is another crowd. I mean, the reason for them boarding the boat and traveling along, skirting the coast in order to find a deserted area was because of Jesus' perception of their need for rest. In fact, the famous preacher of old, G. Campbell Morgan, he referred to it as this. He says that this is a rebuking revelation for many of us. It's a rebuking revelation that we need rest, something we deny, something that at times I think we resent as human beings, the fact that we need rest. But clearly, think about it, the weight of the world was not placed on their shoulders because the king of the world is taking them by the hand and saying it's time to withdraw and for you to rest. In fact, in our story, their need for rest was because of the tiresome task that they had at hand of walking by faith, but it was also the devastating news of the sudden loss of a friend that it wiped them out. My friends, the story validates, I think, our need for rest, which is something I'm a big proponent of, that God has created us with a rhythm for work and rest, even as a church, a rhythm of gathering and scattering. There's rhythms in the creative order of things. Look back even to Genesis itself. It's not just that it validates the need for rest, though. It also demonstrates, I think, in the story what our real obstacle to true deep rest is. And what is that obstacle? Well, both the imagery and the chronology of this moment are pretty comical if you actually picture it. Because the guys come back, they're wiped out needing rest, and then Jesus says, okay, we're going to go to a deserted place. And as they get on the boat and begin to skirt the coastline, making their way down around the coastline to a more deserted region where they can be alone, away from the multitudes and all of their needs, as they're going that direction, the crowd on the coast can spot them, see Jesus on the boat with them, and then the crowd begins to race along the coastline as the boat is moving with them, so that by the time the boat arrives, the multitude is already there. By the time they've docked or or dropped, anchored, and made their way in, the, the crowd is already gathered there because they can see the movement of Jesus along the water. One old commentator, he put it this way, he says, he says, the great physician was no sooner in the boat than he saw his patients mobbing his vacation spot. Jesus and his friends out in their boat watched helplessly while rushing crowds defeated the purpose of their trip. Any hopes for sleep went up in the dust raised by the thousands of feet that scampered along the shore. This old commentator, I like what he said, though. He he made a comment. He said, you know, each predicament, though, even this one, is an education in God's skill. I just liked that thought. Each predicament is an education in God's skill. And each predicament is different, and this one is different, but it's not unique in that it's not yet another opportunity for us to marvel at God's skill. 
See, at first glance, the obstacle to rest seems to be the people. I mean, for us, from our perspective, as we read the story, the obstacle for the rest seems to be people, that the people show up. Even to the disciples, it seems to be that they saw it that way, too. I mean, it's, it's really impossible for us to know with absolute certainty whether the disciples comment uh, when they, they make a comment regarding the crowd in verse 36, where they suggest, send them away, Jesus, to go get a meal. It's impossible for us to know with absolute certainty if that was an excuse to get rid of the crowd, that, hey, they're hungry, they need to get a meal, so send them away. Or if this is an expression of genuine care for the crowd. John's gospel shares the detail that Jesus, when he shows up and he sees the big multitude, that he observes uh, thinking. His mind goes to the crowd, the multitude, and their needs. And then he looks at one of the disciples named Philip and says to Philip, we should buy bread. Where should we buy bread from that these people might eat? That Jesus begins to throw the question their direction. The other gospels highlight for us that Jesus even looks at the guy, as we find in Mark, and tells them, you feed them. You find something for them to eat. And what seems to be a snarky response from the guys seems to kind of crack the lid on the contents of their own heart. And you start to see that it wasn't really full of warm fuzzies for the multitude in that moment. Remember, they've just returned from a really long journey that Jesus sent them on, specifically saying, I'm sending you out not, I'm sending you out without a purse, without a coin bag. He purposefully sent them out with no, with no means, with no finances in their pockets. And one of the uses of that coin bag would be to collect gifts and alms from other people and have a place to store it. He sent them out empty-handed and wanted them to come back empty-handed. And now in this moment, he's like, hey, I want you to solve this problem and buy everybody dinner. For them, they realize this is impossible. G. Campbell Morgan, he refers to their response when they said, should we take a half year's wage and find somewhere to buy bread to feed everyone and just give it away? He refers to it in this way. He says, this is an inquiry of protest. That their inquiry of Jesus was really about putting their foot down and being like, hang on, how ridiculous would this be? Is this what you're really asking of us? It's showing you that they're not really happy campers in this moment and their little getaway trip with Jesus. But when you think about it, the real weariness we deal with in life has less to do with physically being worn out and way more to do with our being overwhelmed. It's less about physically being tired than it is about our awareness of our own inadequacy, about the reality that we're small and limited, that we don't always have solutions or, or remedy for life's challenges that we face. That's what wipes us out. We're weary of soul. And that's the problem far more than just being weary physically. And that's the rest that's so much more difficult to find. Because you can be physically rested and yet absolutely in every other way completely empty. And the presence of the people and the awareness of their needs was not necessarily the true hindrance to the guys finding rest for their weary souls in this moment. In other words, the people... And their problems could still be present and they could still potentially experience rest in their presence if and only if they chose to embrace faith. If they chose to embrace faith in Jesus and Jesus' ability to remedy the problem and care for the people because he alone would be their savior, then even in the presence of the people and all of their problems, they could still find rest for their souls. 
You see, the first thing I think this moment taught them and is meant to teach us is that there's a real obstacle to rest, and it's showing you what it is. You see, they were wiped out and weary. Add to it what seems to be now a growing level of frustration that they now feel towards the people who gathered. But once they admitted their own inability to meet the need, and subsequently, because they admit their own inability, they turn back towards Jesus for the resolution to the burden and problem, then they could rest. And even be filled up and satisfied because 12 baskets would be left, one for each of them, to have provision for what they would need from Jesus, the bread of life. John's gospel tells us that Jesus asked them to do the math and come up with a solution in order to test them, John says. Think about that. This was a test for them to see if they trust Jesus and his ability to provide for them. But this was also a lesson for them. To show them that Jesus could handle what they could not. Remember, the weight of the world was not placed on any of our shoulders because the king of the world gives us permission to withdraw and to rest. And the main obstacle of that rest is not the presence of people, nor the problems that we face in life. The main obstacle to true deep rest is our lack of faith. The writer of Hebrews opens that up beautifully, telling us to labor to enter into rest. And that everyone, the whole multitude, went through the wilderness fighting battles, dealing with being overwhelmed. But some of them successfully entered into rest. The difference between the two experiences, they all experienced the same problem. They all had the same journey. But the difference between the two groups of people is that some of them had faith to believe that God would be faithful. And that faith allowed them to rest in the midst of uncertainty. We have to be willing to, in humility, lay our burdens down and confess in moments, Jesus, I cannot do this. And to turn heaven's direction and in faith pronounce, but Jesus, I believe that you can and I believe that you care. You see, they could rest because Jesus was doing the heavy lifting in the story. There was rest for their souls because the weight of the world wasn't on their shoulders. They sat in the presence and they sat in the pleasure of the king of the world who would do the miraculous. Let me open this up a bit more by sharing kind of the second thing here that the moment taught. Because the first thing was what the real obstacle to rest is. And I would say that that was faith. Their lack of faith was the real obstacle to them being allowed in that moment to find rest for their weary souls by getting out of the way and letting Jesus do what he does. And in the end, they do get out of the way and let him do it. But only after they realize this is too much for us, Jesus, we can't handle this, Jesus. The second thing, though, that this moment teaches us is that we are called to serve people, not solve problems. That's what Jesus has asked for us. And I'll tell you, I actually go back to this thought as a principle so often. That I'm not called to solve problems. I'm just called to serve people. And you might argue and say, but Jesus asked them to solve the problem. But he told us it was a test in order to see how they would respond. And when they admitted their own inability to solve the problem, then Jesus provided what was needed to bring a solution to it. All he asked them to do then was to serve the people. Remember, that's what John said it was. And and it was a rational suggestion. Just send them off, the guy said. You want us to come up with a solution? Just send them off to find their own meal. But Jesus then responds with that irrational suggestion. No, you guys feed them. 
And when they do the math, you need to know that 200 denarii, that denarii was a day's wage. We're talking over six months worth of pay. They're, they're, they're looking at themselves without a money clip on them going, how are we going to do this? This is an impossible ask. Even think about it. He's just pulled them away from the villages out into a deserted area. Even if they had the money or could take up a collection, where would they go to find that kind of food? To feed 5,000 people a meal? They'd be scattering out to all of these villages, bringing horse and buggy and wagon back with them. It, it would never work. It makes no sense. This is an impossible ask. And Jesus asked them to do the impossible, which was exactly the conclusion Jesus wanted the disciples to come up with. That this is too much, Jesus, that there's absolutely no way. If this is how you feel when you want to do something, when you want to engage with the world, when, do you, when you want to help somebody, when you feel like, this is too much. It's, it's, too, it's too much of an impossible task that you're asking for. If that's how you feel, I actually think that's what Jesus wants you in a moment to realize. And it's what he wants you to feel. Because think about it. In this moment, Jesus could have just made, made bread rain down from heaven. It could have been weird. But he could have made it happen. He, he could have just walked up to individuals, had them line up and one by one pull a loaf from behind their ear and a fish from inside their cloak or something. And then the magician Jesus, it was clearly just his work. Instead, he uses their food, even though it was inadequate. And then he multiplied it and had them distribute it, which left them not as manufacturer, manufacturers of what was needed. Instead, they were just the distributors. To be a manufacturer of what someone needs when what they need is hope or wisdom or peace is something I put the pressure on me. When they need comfort and I sit with someone who's hurting, I can feel the pressure to be the manufacturer of what they need. But I meant like the disciples to look and go, Jesus, it's impossible. I don't have what, what they need, but I can be a distributor and give them you. And I believe that you are who they need, not just a what they need. You see, in the story, he chooses to use people, and it's the same is true for us. I was reminded of a quote I heard many, many years ago about just what ministry is, which is not my job. That's our job. Remember, you are the ministers. What ministry is, is ministry, the, the quote goes this way, that ministry takes place when divine resources meet human needs through loving channels to the glory of God. What ministry is, what you and I are called to, is when divine resources, heaven's resources, meet human need through loving channels. That's our role, to the glory of God. You see, Jesus is not looking for your power or for theirs in this moment. He's looking for their faith in his power and your simple obedience to his calling. You see, God can do greater things through your life, and it's not predicated upon your clean track record, or your great ability or natural giftedness. No, God was fine using completely inadequate people and resources who simply were willing to respond to his call and take a step of faith with him. He's the one then who did the miraculous work that accomplished the amazing thing that needed to be done, which means that I cannot be too ordinary. I can't ever have too little money or resources to make a difference because the work is accomplished through the power of God working through my simple obedience and faith. He fed 5,000 men through one boy's sack lunch. And if that's true, who cares what the odds are? Because God is not limited by my limited resources nor yours. When I first started uh, working in ministry on the other side of school, 
I was serving in youth ministry, and I remember it, it was only maybe, maybe a couple months into me doing it. There was a specific day I don't think I'll ever forget where I remember I'd spent some time with an adult friend uh, who was talking about some of the challenges they were still dealing with from their childhood and how they geographically were trying to put mileage between them and their birth father because of how messy and broken the situation was and how manipulative it continued to be. I remember sitting, looking at them, feeling so overwhelmed, like, gosh, I don't even know what to say to you other than, like, this is tragic and I'm so sorry. And then at lunch, I met with a young boy who spilled the beans on the fact that his mom had hired a prior invest, private investigator to follow his dad because of so many things that became erratic and inconsistent. And what she found was that he was having multiple affairs and was uh, determined to leave the family and had already squandered all that they had on prostitutes. And now I've got a 14-year-old looking at me saying, what am I supposed to do? And then that evening as I was driving home from work, I got a phone call from someone who served in ministry with me saying that, they had the worst day of their life because they sat with their mom and finally opened up as a 20-something to their mom over brunch and said, you know, I've been having these reoccurring nightmares my whole life that dad would molest me. And then I'd wake up from the nightmare and go, why would I ever think that? And she said, honey, I'm sorry to tell you that's why I divorced your dad. And I remember getting off the phone and getting home and just being so broken. Because there are people I loved, all three of them. And there are people that sin in the world had chewed up and spit out, who were so broken. I was so thankful that I knew that God wanted to use my life. I had become so excited about the prospect of God. How would you use my life? And then I'm hit with the needs of people, and I go, there's absolutely no way. I have no solution. What do I tell my friend about her needing to find some place to live to basically hide out from her dad? What do, I, what do I tell this young student about the brokenness and the hurt that he feels and how he and his mom and his younger brother are going to move out of their house and don't know what it'll look like? What do I tell this other person who's realizing these nightmares were reality and the man that she grew up thinking one way about wasn't the person she thought he was? What, what do I tell these people? And I remember sitting on the floor in my bedroom I lived with a bunch of guys. There were eight of us, which is the bachelor thing to do in a three-bedroom house. But I had a quiet moment, and I sat on the floor and just cried and thought, God, I, I don't know what I signed up for. The thing that was most overwhelming to me is those people came to me not because I had a title. They came to me because they knew that I loved them and that I followed Jesus. This wasn't like some crossroads in my life that was like, how do I stay in full-time vocational ministry? It was like, how do I follow Jesus and love people and know that because I love them, they bring their needs my direction? And what do I do with them? It was, it was a crossroads of Jesus. I don't know how I could ever follow you and, and do life with these people if they're bringing problems like this and I don't know how to solve them. And so I opened my Bible to where I'd left off that morning in my devotions and found this story. And I found that moment where Jesus looked at the guys and said, you feed them. And I was like, gosh, this is me. I, I, this is my life. I'm in this moment. How am I supposed to do this? And when they come back and say those similar responses, it's when Jesus said, have them sit down and begin to serve them what I provide for them. It was so life-giving to me to realize that Jesus wasn't asking me to do something I couldn't do because all Jesus was asking me to do was serve people he was promising to solve the problem. He was promising to be their savior. He was promising to be their provider. He was promising to give the supernatural wisdom and the comfort. I could be the loving channel that he'd pour those resources through, but I didn't carry the weight and responsibility of the world or of a solution for their problem because he didn't ask me to solve their problem only 
insofar as to show me that I couldn't. So I would turn his direction and say, but Jesus, you can. And so Jesus, you're the one that I'm going to take them back to. Jesus, you're the one that when I sit with them in that moment, I'm going to say, I don't have an answer. But I have a Jesus who loves you and will stand by you in this. I don't know what provision will look like, but I have a great provider and good shepherd in Jesus. I knew that I wasn't there to solve their problems. I knew that God had placed me there just to serve those people. And it's a principle I go back to again and again and again. One commentator said it this way. He said, the miracle took place in Jesus' hands, not theirs. For whatever we give him, he can bless and multiply. We are not manufacturers We are only distributors. My friends, moments, though, where that happens, where he manufactures and we just get to distribute what he gives us, those moments only happen if we allow ourselves to be interrupted. What they saw as an interruption, Jesus saw as an opportunity. We get so busy that, like, when we're at the checkout stand... We're in a hurry on to the next thing. So when we look someone in the eye and go, something seems off or you seem bummed, we don't have time, we say, to engage with that person. It's when we're leaving and pulling out of our driveway and we see our neighbor just kind of nonchalantly look our direction and the way that they look our way and the way that they wave, you go, there's something there, something's off. But you feel like, no, but I got to get to the next thing. And so you just put it in drive and then you're off to the races. You and I have to be willing to allow for a divine interruption to take place if we want to see the miraculous at work in our lives, which is not God saying, here's the problem, solve it. He's saying, here's the hurting, will you serve them? All solve it. I'll rescue them. I'm their savior. You see, John's gospel in the end tells you what the the lesson here was. And the lesson for the miracle is that Jesus calls himself the bread of life. That the miracle teaches us that he came to give bread, the bread of life, that he came to give life, to give himself. But for someone to experience the life that Jesus gives, it would take a miracle was his lesson. And the way that that miracle of new life would be dispersed around the world to this world is through human channels. That it had to be his people taking and distributing the bread of life to the people that they'd come in contact with, to the people in need, to the people who are hurting, to the people who are weary. We are nobody's savior. We are simply to carry the savior their direction. We're simply to distribute what he gives us. Before we move on to the last thing, I just want to throw out a little thought before we shift gears to the final thought. And that's I just want to mention that to multiply bread here is not merely so that they would be impressed with Jesus' power, but I think what Jesus also wanted them to see was that he cared about their well-being. It wasn't just about power for the multitude to watch. It was about them to see that he deeply cared about their well-being. I mean, it's a precious and a simple but powerful truth for us to be reminded of that Jesus cared about whether or not these people went to bed hungry that night. And in our story, he then expected his disciples to care about it as well. In fact, he instructed them to do something about even a simple thing like that. You see, I think the story for the disciples first showed them what the obstacle to true deep rest is. And it's not about people or problems being present in your life. It's a choice to embrace faith. But the second thing I think it shows us is that we're not called to solve people's problems so much as we're just called to serve them. Take what I give to you, the bread of life, 
and take it to people. I'll be their savior. I will be their provider. I will be their rescuer. But the third and final thing, I think that the story taught the disciples super clearly and a first century audience that they would look at this and say, it's so obvious is that Jesus was kickstarting a revolution. Something we potentially miss here is that Jesus is kickstarting a revolution. And I just want to finish by deconstructing the story a bit and maybe reframing it slightly different than maybe if you grew up in church, the flanograph may have presented for you time and time again. I want you to look at it a little bit different just for a few minutes as we wrap up and land the plane. For us, the feeding of the 5,000, it actually signals the end of Jesus' Galilean ministry. This is where it, it wraps up. He's been in Galilee ministering for about two years, and it comes to an end. John's gospel tells us specifically on the heels of this miracle, it comes to an end when Jesus refused to become their king. And at that point, they lost interest. The multitudes did, and they deserted him. And John chapter 6 is where you find this little nugget of information. It'll pop up on the screen for you. But at, on the heels of the feeding of the 5,000, it says that then those men... When they had seen the sign that Jesus did, talking about the feeding of the 5,000, said, this is truly the prophet who's come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. One commentator said it this way. He said, the world did not need another Alexander as much as the world needed a savior. So Jesus withdrew. Jesus is kickstarting a revolution here. There's little tidbits of information here that we're meant to pick up on to do with some of the description of what's happening around them, the region, uh, some of the geographic information, and even some of the verbiage that's used specifically about the way that Jesus saw them. So let me talk you through this really fast. First and foremost, verse 39, there's a comment that's made that it was that he had them sit down on the green grass. And if you've been in Galilee most of the year, the grass is not green. It's like driving around in San Diego. Most of the year, we're not known as a green place. We're pretty brown, other than we know in the springtime. That's very different. In the springtime, I live in South Poway. The hills by our home are beautiful. And when people come and visit, they go, it must be so nice to see those green hills. We say, sure it is, for like two months a year. The rest of the time, it's not so nice because we just think of fire hazards. And it drives our insurance up. But for them to mention this is telling you it's springtime. In fact, John's gospel takes it the next step and says, in fact... It's the time of Passover that this takes place. That's the hint that Mark is giving you. Yeah, the green grass makes us think of Psalm 23, a shepherd king who makes us lie down in green pastures, sure. But it really takes our mind back to the springtime, which meant Passover. A time, think about it, this is what's on their minds because they're about to make their pilgrimage back to Jerusalem to celebrate and observe Passover. What's on their mind is the deliverance from their taskmasters that God had brought, which was Egypt. And now their taskmaster, they're looking, and it's Rome. And Jesus is looking and saying, oh, but, but you shoot too, too, you've set the, the goal too low. You've set the bar too low. You shoot at a smaller target than the grand target that's behind Rome and was behind Egypt. It's Satan himself. It's our enemy. They're thinking of God's deliverance. They're thinking about the way that God brought about that deliverance. He brought about that deliverance of them through what? Miracles in the blood of an innocent sacrifice. They're looking ahead then with anticipation to a hope and dream of a future promise that, that a deliverer would come once again, that that had all foreshadowed and that they would be rescued again. Passover is about looking back, but looking ahead in hope, looking back to remember God's faithfulness and looking ahead to remember his promise that he'd do it again. 
And Jesus is in this moment making it very clear that I'm not going to deliver them from Rome, but from Satan's reign of sin, sickness, and death. But it would have to be, once again, the blood of an innocent sacrifice in order to bring about that kind of deliverance. With all that on their minds, remembering their past and being hopeful of the future, Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, stands up to be recognized in this moment as the one that they need. Now get nerdy with me for a minute. Scholars are really quick to point out about the region that they end up uh, coming into, this deserted region, that when he left the villages along the coast of Galilee, scholars point out to us that the deserted regions was where the rebels hid out, where the zealots had made basically their base of operations. The zealots were Jews who wanted to bond, bind together in order to overthrow the Roman government. This is the hotbed of the rebellious movement. And that's where Jesus finds himself in this moment. Think about it. Even the, what's notated in all four Gospels, that it's 5,000 men in attendance. We don't know if that's just excluding women and children for some reason, or if there's a detail given there, because really it was either exclusively or nearly exclusively men, because these were the men along that region up in the hillside there who were hiding out from the Roman occupation and who were bonding together to come up with a plan to overthrow their oppressors. In fact, historically, historians tell us that 5,000 is a significant number because it was typically the amount of men that were involved in a Roman legion. So 5,000 would trigger in the minds of a first century audience, oh, that's talking about a whole encampment. That's talking about a whole military movement. In fact, Josephus talks about the, the amount of Jews that in AD 67 uh, made their last stand against the Romans was 5,000 men. Now, I don't know that that was an exact number or that was his way of communicating that they mustered everything that they had in order to put up a good fight. But when it says then, taking that imagery and seeing 5,000 men are present... I think it's taking your mind into a combat area, a combat mentality, because it's not just the region, but now even the number. But what it's telling you is that this story isn't about Jesus just hosting some picnic for a bunch of wayward people. It's telling you that Jesus is really kickstarting some sort of a revolution, that he's trying to bring about a turnaround in, in the direction that the world is headed. And what they wanted was a turnaround from their oppressors. And what Jesus wanted was a turnaround that was much bigger than the, what they had dreamed. In fact, think of the way that, that Mark masterfully uh, tells these two stories that are smashed up against each other about two different feasts. One hosted by Herod just before this and the other now hosted by Jesus. For Herod, it's the nobles and the elites. For Jesus, it's commoners. For Herod, it's prepared by gourmet chefs. For Jesus, it's prepared by him. For Herod, there's entertainment with exotic dancers. For Jesus, he spoke and explained God's truth and his plan. Uh, for Herod, it wrapped up with an execution. For Jesus, it was compassion for the common people that was the driving force of it all. Think of the contrast here. Herod, the suppressive king, working in sub subjection with the Roman Empire, Herod, who's just beheaded a prophet and a, and a public servant as a drunken party favor, contrast that with Jesus standing with compassion in his eyes, meeting the most basic needs of those who stood in front of him, even when they were potentially the outcasts of society. Jesus would then depart when they're like, this is our God. Let's make him our king. We, we've got a plan and he's the guy to spearhead it. We're going right to Rome. We're going after them. Jesus departs when they wanted him to be the king that would match their paradigm. Because although it's a story about a revolution, it's a story about a revolution that no one expected. No one saw it going the way that it did. 
They thought it's all led up to this. Let's do it, Jesus. Get on your white horse and let's go. Instead, Jesus would sit on the back of a humble donkey, lowly, a, a beast of burden, and enter into Jerusalem to suffer and die, not to drive back its oppressors. There's an important phrase that's used here. Again, you're, you're being nerdy, and I appreciate your patience. But the important f- phrase that's used here is it says, he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. For us, we, we think of, when we read something like that, okay, Jesus saw them affectionately and fondly. Sheep are cute, and he wanted to embrace them, and they're in need of affectionate care. He didn't see them as a nuisance. It's saying that he saw them as attractive and, and, and worthy of his affection. But we're selling the statement short because the prophets had actually used it to reference a shepherd king that would be coming, that he'd be a shepherd king, the king who would have the heart of a shepherd, Psalm 23 tells us, that he would be the good shepherd, Psalm 78 would say. He'd shepherd them according to the integrity of its heart, verse 72 says. Isaiah 40, 11 says it this way, he will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arms and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are the young. We know that Jesus would say that the good shepherd would lay down his life for the sheep. Numbers 27, as Moses is looking forward towards the promised land, he said, I need a successor, a military leader, someone to lead this new movement into the promised land. And what he prayed specifically is that God would send someone who would see them as sheep without a shepherd, end quote. And here Jesus arrives in fulfillment of that request, the one who looked at them and saw them as sheep without a shepherd. For a modern revolutionist or an ancient one, the first thing you do, first act of duty, gain a following, yeah, for sure, hand out a weapon and teach someone to use it. Keller picks up on this and touches on the irony of the moment when he says, and how does Jesus respond to their calling for this revolutionary leader, for them wanting him to be king? Jesus gives out his word and bread, and he gives his disciples bread distribution training. It's odd, it's strange, it's anticlimactic, And it's a unique revolution that Jesus is starting. And it's not just an accident. I think it's something he's deliberately doing here, that he's demonstrating that he won't march his movement in to a military drumbeat, but that it would be so very different. I mean, imagine if we were in North Korea and we were, we were overwhelmed by the regime that, that exists there. And so we'd go out to the hills and we'd bond together and we'd say, we're gonna, we need a leader, but we're going to overthrow them. We're going to beat them back. We're going to be free of this. And finally, an individual emerges and we follow him around and we hear his teaching and we go, this guy's the guy to lead us. And then as he begins to line us up or put us into groups in order to train us, what he does instead of hand out an AK-47 is he hands out a baguette. <laughs> It'd be a weird moment. What if drone footage had captured the whole thing and was leaked to the world news and and it's showing what looks like every other training camp of a terror group, except not just climbing under barbed wire and climbing over the wall, but then it shows a bunch of people basically lining up with ladles as if they're going to have a soup kitchen at the end of the day rather than having RPGs strapped to their shoulders. The whole thing is so counter to what we would expect and so counter to what the people who gathered that day expected, but was very, very intentional on Jesus' part. I mean, why hand out bread? What's the significance of bread? For us as modern Americans, bread means carbohydrates. That's all it means. <laughs> bread means stay away. Bread means not good. Bread means uh, too puffy. Like, it wouldn't be... that we, we have an aversion to this idea at this point in the 21st century. Bread in the ancient world or in third world countries today, it, it communicates life. That's what bread is. And that's why Jesus would say, I am the bread of life. 
He's saying that, that every other re revolutionary leader, that what they handed out was death and what they left in their wake was death. But what Jesus came to do was to hand out life and to leave a trail of life behind him. And Jesus would teach right after this miracle in John 6 that he would come to satisfy the deepest needs that people had, a deeper need than hunger. Because you will eat and be hungry again, but I will satisfy you forever because I am the bread of life. I am what you truly hunger for. They were pursuing this revolutionary leader that would give them new life through violence. Just change our life by overtaking those who oppress us. Just changing the whole thing for us. Put us in power. That's what we want. And Jesus is here teaching that there's a deeper hunger that must be addressed and met. That, that people's desires were only on the surface level, but Jesus would go deeper than that. And we understand that because all of us have things that we think that, that if only I had that, then I'd be happy. Circumstances that we're convinced if only he would change that and take that away from looming over me, then I'd be happy. All of us think things about ourselves that if only that had changed about me, if only this was different about me, if only this could work out in my life, then I'd be happy. But the problem is for so many of us, we have those moments finally come together. We get those things. It finally works out the way we had want. We end up in maybe the relationship we'd hoped for, receiving the promotion that we had dreamed of, only to realize it was never what we really needed anyways because it really couldn't satisfy us. And so Jesus stands up and says, and I am the bread of life. Every revolutionary shares this in common, that, that they would first start by giving out their manifesto. Jesus would do that. He does it here by teaching. He, he does it, we refer to it as the, as the Sermon on the Mount. And there's fragments of that sermon throughout all of the Gospels because it becomes clear that that wasn't something Jesus really just taught once, but that was his message, the message of the kingdom. And what he tells them in that message is that faith and love are going to disarm your enemies and they're going to establish his kingdom. He's going to hand out a manifesto, but then he's also going to hand out and train people with a weapon, how to use it. And what Jesus does here is he distributes loaves and fish instead of a sword, training his people to serve others in love self-sacrificially. But every revolution jump starts with an act, a violent act of bloodshed. It's the whole of the gang joining together and going out to battle. And attacking someone who's not expecting it and making a statement that involves bloodshed. Jesus will also begin this same way. With a violent act in bloodshed. But it will not be in Jesus' story him attacking his enemies. It will be instead him giving his life for his enemies. There's a foreshadow of that moment in this. And that it says that Jesus blessed and broke. That Jesus took the loaves and the fish. He blessed and broke. In Hebrew, or I'm sorry, in the Greek language, it's that simple. It's just the two words, blessed and broke. Blessed, broke. It's an intentional reference to what will happen at the end of Mark's gospel, where Jesus will sit in an upper room, bless and break. Same exact simple verbiage, blessed and broke. This is my body that will be given for you. This is my blood that will be shed for you. He blessed and broke. Jesus on a cross then. Yelling out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He blessed, and then he gave up the ghost. He broke. He blessed and broke as a substitute. And as a substitute, I'm now a part of his revolution. Through my faith in that moment, I'm a part of the Jesus revolution in the world that gives out life, the bread of life. Where I don't have to be someone's savior, I just serve the people. He did it as a substitute. He did it as an example also. 
And the example is that the kingdom of God expands as I humble himself, as I humble myself and die to myself. You know, when you think about it, the irony of the fact that the story finishes, the gospel does, with soldiers mocking Jesus as a king, with them placing the title above his head, with them uh, putting the robe around his body after beating him and a crown of thorns upon his head. Oh, the irony as they watched him tremble and shake from blood loss and torture that they had put him through. They thought of him as so weak and vulnerable. They thought of him as a defeated revolutionary. But his death kick-started the revolution. He was victorious. That is what changed everything for all of us. 